Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Thank you and good morning. We're absolutely delighted today to welcome Andrew Dietz, who's the co-founder and partner of Creative Influence a sales-enabled public relations and content firm that works especially with business-to-business clients. He's also founder and managing partner of Creative Growth, a B2B marketing strategy and business development firm. He's also author of dozens of articles, a blog about creativity and innovation called Idea Monger, and two books, including The Opening Playbook, A Professional's Guide to Building Relationships That Grow Revenue. Andrew is a graduate of University of Michigan School of Business and Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. He's lived in Atlanta for over 30 years, though his clients span across the United States and and globally. Andrew joins us today to talk about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship, creating revenue-generating relationships through content and about building a creative life. A quick disclaimer before we start, Andrew has been working with my team at Flock Specialty Finance to help us better tell our own story to the marketplace. So we know Andrew well. We love working with Andrew and his team. Andrew, how did you get this motivation to do startups when you were with companies like Ziff Davis and Bell South, huge companies that people don't think are really terribly necessarily creative? Now, Ziff Davis was publishing, but Bell South, my God, what a monstrous conglomerate. How did you get this spark to do these kinds of things in big companies? Well, first of all, Michael, thanks for having me. And I love your theme music. I I know uh, our audience couldn't see, but I was dancing. And since you couldn't see, then I'm a fantastic dancer. Okay. But uh, I think we all are creative and entrepreneurial, uh, but not all of us allow that natural instinct to come to the surface. I was born to parents who were very creative. My dad was trained as an artist and did start his own business. When I was uh, still in high school, Inc. Magazine first published its first issue, and I probably was the youngest reader of it at that time. So there was something about uh, creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship that had caught my attention early on. And I think in part it's because I kind of came from that heritage of, uh, you know, father who, who had those instincts. You know, I never thought I'd work for a larger corporation. I always had interest in the smaller, more entrepreneurial startups, something of my own. So it was a surprise to me when I entered a company like Bell South. And you're right about Ziff Davis. Ziff Davis was, uh, you know, was an incredibly entrepreneurial organization, mm-hmm. as they had to be. They mm-hmm. had publications focused on special interests. Ultimately, when I joined, they were focused on building a computer magazine division. So these are all areas that change constantly, meaning that the organization had to be constantly thinking about what was next, how mm-hmm. to grow and sometimes end and sometimes restart or start new mm-hmm. publications. So uh, the environment was inherently entrepreneurial. At Bell South, you might not think so, right? You worked right. at AT&T for Correct. a while, didn't you? Yep. So you know. I was fortunate in joining Bell South. After I left the publishing industry, I left because I was here in Atlanta and I wanted to stay, but I was from New York and that's where the magazine publishing industry was. Right. But I met the woman who became my wife Mm -hmm. and she's from here Mm -hmm. and that made it hard to leave. I ended up, you know, doing something that was a mistake. And I'll come back to your question in a minute. You made a mistake? Uh, yeah, occasionally. <laughs> but it, it, I'll come back around to your question about, you know, big companies innovating. But, but let me start with this sort of diversion that led me to Bell South. And it, and it was that I convinced myself that a business could be just a business. I didn't have to do what I was passionate about. 
right, or what I was interested in. And so to stay here in Atlanta in mm-hmm. the late 80s, when there really wasn't, there was certainly no magazine publishing business here and very little media of substance short of CNN, or you could work if you wanted to get $10,000 a year. I um, ended up joining my wife and my father-in-law in a family manufacturing business in Cartersville, Georgia. And uh, so I'm uh, here I am, a little preppy kid from Connecticut and New York, driving my Saab up to Cartersville over the railroad tracks and managing two manufacturing plants. I had absolutely no business doing that. I learned a lot the hard way. And ultimately, we, sh- not because of me necessarily or completely, but we did end up shutting that business down. And that was quite a lesson to me about, you know, following a path that fits one's natural skills and abilities, at least for me. A mm-hmm. business isn't just a business. I have to do what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that was, again, where entrepreneurship and creativity intersected. And at the time where, for me, media intersect. And that was in the then early 90s, the world of interactive media. Back then, it was pre-World Wide Web. So interactive media meant... CD-ROMs and online services. It was through that, going back to business school and then paying my way through in part through consulting gigs at interactive media companies uh, that led me to Bell South. They were starting at the time, uh, one of the early incarnations of interactive television. And I joined out of business school as a director of content. Uh And then uh, when they started bellsouth.net, I became director of marketing and then ultimately VP of marketing for that. So I had the good fortune of being in the entrepreneur, the intrapreneurial, as you put it, area of a big company. And they pretty much left us alone because most of the executives who had grown up in the phone business, they didn't really know a lot about what uh-huh. was uh, uh-huh. what was emerging in the right. realm of interactive media. It was, it was right. new and different and they felt... So you were different. You didn't maybe didn't fit into that. I, I was different. I'm a, a subversive in a Brooks Brother clothing, so I didn't think that I would be accepted at a Bell South, but that was a, a really great environment for mm-hmm. me. I say, especially early in your career, you want three things, network, name, and knowledge. I was able to gain all of those things while helping Bell South build and launch what became bellsouth.net and then the DSL or the broadband. Now it's regular speed, but back then broadband over ADSL you know, technology was the advance. So big companies may not be inherently entrepreneurial. The bigger you get, the harder it is. That said, increasingly those kinds of organizations are trying harder than ever to bring entrepreneurship into their businesses, both enhancing their culture, sometimes trying to drive that level of creative thinking throughout the whole organization, sometimes trying just skunk works operations, sometimes, especially here in Atlanta, creating innovation centers. We've got to be one of the leaders now of hosting innovation centers uh, in the country. And they're big companies. AT&T has one here, right. for example. Right. So what I'm hearing, Andrew, is that creativity in business can also be very, very strategic. It is really kind of the power behind innovation. So I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud with you here. What did you see differently about management in, let's say, the manufacturing environment where you were for a brief time, and then management at Bell South, both in their core business, but then what was different about management in the unit that you were that was launching the the new internet service? One thing that is common across both environments and is more important now than ever is the ability to solve problems creatively. That may be different from the bigger strategic creativity and innovation that we typically think of, Mm -hmm. such as how do we position this company differently? How do we change our business model to compete? Mm -hmm. 
but it starts with inculcating in your people, whether they're factory workers or whether they're white collar executives at a big phone company, the ability to ask not just how, but how else? How else could we get this done? Mm-hmm. Well, the machine's done tore up mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. know, we can't do that because our uh, traditional systems won't handle such things. Well, how else could you do it? What, what could we do? Uh, so that that's creative problem solving, uh, beginning to wrestle with or challenge oneself and the organization to, to ask, what if we did it this way or that way? What if we took this immovable ob- obstacle and went under it or over it or around it? Mm-hmm. Or maybe that isn't really an obstacle. Maybe it's an opportunity. It's that kind of thinking that from a management standpoint, ultimately I learned both engaged the teams that I led and energized me. And at first, though, of course, uh, as I said, I learned that the hard way because that certainly right. wasn't my approach. Uh, when people would say to me early in my career, well, it can't be done, uh, that would get a kind of hostile rise out of me. Mm-hmm. And I would push back hard. And, you know, as uh, uh, with, with time and, and experience, and I may still do it, but with time and experience, I've been able to ask people to play along with me and engage with them and collaborate with them in that kind of how else thinking rather mm-hmm. than pushing back. Mm-hmm. So creativity then in terms of management, it's a different way of problem solving and also decision making then? Sure. You know, it, creativity is usually thought of as, a, or innovation is just the top of the funnel, meaning let's come up with a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. But innovation is applied creativity, and innovation requires decision-making. It means prioritizing. In today's world, of course, priorities change right. minute by minute. Right. So we live these days in our business world in improvisation, not in a linear sort of static realm. So both coming up with ideas and making decisions about them is an ongoing process. Well, the other word that kind of stands out in your history and your bio and in your work, and frankly, in the book that you wrote, the opening playbook, you know, the the guide to building relationships to grow revenue, you do so much work in in the online world and interactive media. Are relationships, are personal relationships today just as important what as is they that? were? What is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we're all online now. And, you know, we're doing a lot in the fintech space with online lenders and we're funding folks right. that buy their debt. But so much of those relationships are online and they're, it's not personal relationships. So has the industry and the, I call it, you know, the electronic world of creativity, has that changed the definition and meaning and value of personal relationships? Well, I hope not. I mean, do you have to rewrite uh, I, this I, book? I hope not, and I fear it, it is. But again, it's a, it's a how else question. Even if that is the case, what are the opportunities? Um, and, and what I see happening is, and really almost has to happen, mm-hmm. look, digital doesn't replace human interaction. I hope it never will. And what I see businesses doing now is focusing more than ever, actually, on building great customer or client experiences and using digital capabilities not to replace, but to support and enhance those uh, relationships. You know, so, and and new technology, whether it's artificial, you know, the cloud, artificial intelligence, um, AR, VR, and a whole bunch of other acronyms, which I really don't know what they mean. No, I do. But these things are coming together to not displace interpersonal Mm -hmm. live interactions, but to supplement them in a way that is warmer and more personal than they've been before. Okay. So you may go online and interact with a chat bot, right? right? And it seems right. like it's real, right? And it right. may even know things about you personally, right? Right, right. And that's good and interesting, mm-hmm. but um, 
It's not instead of. Those tools are now being implemented in conjunction with Mm -hmm. better equipped live customer care representatives online or better Mm -hmm. equipped Mm -hmm. retail store uh, staff Mm -hmm. or better equipped executives who are are talking to their their clients uh, where we can quickly remember digitally and, you know, with with digital support, the names of the children or the names of, you know, or the, whereas we might be stuck without that sort of enhancement. So- does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So to summarize, what I'm hearing is that kind of the e-commerce world uh, relationships or, or the online technology that supports that is meant to enhance relationships, not eliminate them. Is I, that Ideally, that's right. And okay. so LinkedIn is an example. You know, those who dismiss or misuse LinkedIn think that it is in some way, if I build a list of people... Mm-hmm. of connections, mm-hmm. then I've done my right. relationship building. Or if I've liked something somebody's written, the ideal way to use LinkedIn or any tools like that is to, again, in, as an enhancement, as a supplement, as a way to give yourself leverage to stay connected to more people than you could have before in a more intimate way. Ultimately, though, those relationships fade unless there is some human interaction. I've now got about 3,000 LinkedIn contacts. Mm-hmm. And I am about to challenge myself to see if I can cut that in half. Be- Why would you want to cut it? In well, half? you know, because um, you know, over time, um, it's not I'm, possible to have those no, personal I mean, interactions yeah, with three thousand people, right? And, and so I have people on there that I don't even know. So you may say, Andrew, you know, it looks like you know. Greg, uh-huh. could you make a connection? And I'm like, well, not really. You know, I haven't talked to Greg in 20 years. Right. It's not that I want to end my relationship with Greg, but to have a smaller number of people that I have a higher quality of relationship with in that online environment changes the value of, of LinkedIn for me. And it changes the value of my interaction with LinkedIn for those who are asking me for help. Right, right. So would you say this applies, these rules these principles apply to the debt buying industry that we're in? Yeah, I mean, debt buying industry, well, there are a couple of aspects to it, right? Uh-huh. There's, there's the buying and there's the, the collecting. You know, I think historically, you know, there's been a reputation transactional rather than relational uh-huh. business dealings in, in this field. Although, without question, uh, you know, as I look at you and your business, you know, you've built tremendous relationships as as your team with people in the market. So so it does exist, but there is a reputation you're dealing with. And that reputation certainly is translated to consumer relationships um, when it comes to collections. And it could be that that's just the way the market has to be because you're dealing with a tough situation. You're dealing with debt that, you know, uh, needs to be collected and is, you know, uh, past due, et cetera. But I would ask, you know, what would happen if there was a bit more relationship thinking applied to the industry, both on the part of an organization like yours and and the debt buyers, as well as the relationship between collectors and and consumers? What would that look like? And could it happen? And if so, Mm -hmm. what? So again, ask Mm -hmm. How else could we do that? Mm-hmm. And it could be that, you know what? It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it could be that there is an angle or an approach that could change the game. Uh, what I like about what you guys are doing is really looking at continuously how to kind of upgrade the professionalism and the relational aspect of the business that you're in. Well, interestingly, what we're seeing is that 
technology is creating new solutions for collection companies to actually talk to the consumer with more focus because they have more information about that consumer and the debt that that consumer owes. So ironically, it's the technology that may even deepen the relationship with the consumer and add more value to create more successful transactions, more successful calls because of the data that's being collected and how that data is shared in databases with multiple collection agencies. So it's, it's an interesting irony that technology may actually enhance the communication with consumers. Absolutely. And I think I think you're right. That was the that was what I was trying to say earlier. Um, one of my clients is a, a major technology consulting and implementation firm that's affiliated with some of the you know, the big software companies and, and so on. And I was just, uh, we do a lot of writing articles and blog posts and content creation for them. I literally last night just finished an article about exactly this. Mm-hmm. What's the infrastructure for building more intelligent customer experiences? In the case of the article, the demonstration I was using was one of retail banking. Uh, but your example is is even better because mm-hmm. you've got, uh, you know, your industry has a tougher situation. It is inherently more antagonistic on the surface than, you know, friendly. Although, you know, if you've dealt with some banks, uh, as much as they want to be friendly, it feels antagonistic. Uh, But but that aside, personal, personal issues aside, I think your example is a terrific one. And I really think that's what increasingly companies are looking to do, the buyers of this technology, and I can guarantee you because they're my clients, that the sellers of these technologies are interested in enabling that Mm -hmm. transformation through better customer experience, meaning better relationships with customers. So I I may be an optimist or Pollyanna in this, but I I see the positive uh, aspects, not the automaton uh, distancing that could occur. Now, you mentioned content um, and you've got a couple companies. One is called Creative Influence, which you say is a sales enabled PR and content firm. What does that mean? Uh, Well, you know, often, first of all, let me describe content. This is a little bit different, perhaps, than some people. It's a broader definition than typically people might think of. Content is often viewed as, well, what we're doing now. We're creating content by having a discussion that will be available online, or we could write articles or white papers. That's typically what's viewed as content. A different approach to that is, what is valuable to the people you're trying to build a relationship with? And that could be something written, it could be information, but it could be ideas, Mm -hmm. it could be introductions. Let me introduce you to Greg, let me, information of a different kind, you you know, the data that could help change the way somebody runs, or one of your clients runs their business Mm -hmm. is content. So content is in-person experiences, it's all kinds of uh, things much more broadly defined than just a white paper that I download online. Mm Let's go back to the traditional definition, you know, article in a magazine or something like that that gets written. Typically or historically, those kinds of activities are, quote, branding activities. Boy, it's nice. Hey, we got an article in, you know, in this publication. Isn't that great? Yeah. What good is that doing you? Mm -hmm. It's great for your ego and maybe it lifts (laughs) recognition of the brand, but the world business doesn't... um, doesn't have much patience for just branding anymore. They want to say, well, 
not just what the link is between content and branding, but what's the link between content and business development? Mm-hmm. My background is, uh, as much as it's been marketing, it's really been on the, the from the perspective of sales and business development. And that's how I started my company, Creative Growth, to focus especially on those that don't have professional sales staff, right. those organizations that typically business or professional services firms that have experts. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to sell mm-hmm. and they don't even want to market, mm-hmm. but they have to. So how do we help them? That's how I started Creative Growth. I joined forces with a colleague, Natalie Springfield, who has a PR firm called Influence PR. Mm-hmm. She was dealing with a similar audience. And we decided that she had chocolate and I had peanut butter and we should put them together and make a Reese's cup. Uh, so we uh, you know, we took Creative Growth and Influence PR and, and came up with Creative Influence, which is using content, using ways to add value to our clients' customers, and building that from the beginning so that it links to more conversations, mm-hmm. conversations that drive business. So the, the book I wrote, Opening, is, is the opening playbook is really sort of at the core of that idea of sales enablement. What, what we're trying to do is not just re- lift the brand, but create more of the right conversations with more of the right people, you know, in the right way, with the right context, more often. Right. So this ties to these six C's that you talk about a lot, the connections, curiosity, conversations, creativity, context, and consequences. That's a lot to remember, but... It is. Uh, You know, in the song, the ABC, I I never got past the C, so... (laughs) And don't make me sing it now because that wouldn't uh, okay. be Yeah. So, well, first of all, you know, back to the idea of relationships, it all starts and ends with who we know and how well we know them and what kind of willingness and ability we have to help each other. Uh, and the more of those kinds of relationships, high willingness and high ability to help that we have in our inventory, the better. The, you know, conversations, uh, conversations, uh, well, relationships are built, we could say one conversation at a time. Great conversations start with curiosity, genuine curiosity. What do you, you know, what's right. interesting right. to uh, about you to me that I want to ask you about, right? So, and content is another one. That may be seven C's. I don't know. A sale of seven C's. There you go. See, I'm a marketing guy, so we have to have things oh, that. Oh boy. Also, never mind. <laughs> never mind. You know, and, I won't go on. Okay. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, yeah. and we've talked a lot about strategic concepts and the importance of creativity and innovation. But let's get down to some brass tacks, Andrew. And, and you work for some big companies, but then you started your own companies. With your own companies, did you ever have a moment where you felt like you were failing and that your company wasn't going to succeed and that you were a failure yourself? I mean, were there any life-changing moments throughout your journey or was it pretty smooth sailing all along? Well, it's Michael, It's to answer that question accurately, it's a matter of degree. I may have that feeling every day, but to different degrees. And so to some degree, that level of fear is a motivator. Sometimes it can kind of reach a pinnacle and and be a a stopping point or a a point of revelation and direction change. Uh, For me, it happened, uh, well, it's happened a couple of times, but the one that probably is most notable was uh, after leaving Bell South, I helped to start a venture capital fund. I was the junior partner to a mentor of mine. Is that Mellon? Ventures? Well, it became a part of Mellon Ventures. Yeah. yeah, we used their money, their people, and their office space. This was Net Worth Ventures, and but we were essentially their technology and new media investing arm. 
I ended up going in and joining one of the operating companies, uh, one of our portfolio companies as the CEO. It, w- it would have been, you know, huge success now. It was probably an early social media company, but this was, you know, way before our time, you know, its time in 2000. So we had a great technology in search of a marketplace and that does not make a business necessarily. Mm-hmm. So as the bubble started to burst, our runway shortened. We ended up selling uh, the business and you know, it was a, was a reasonable exit. It, you know, I can't retire and, uh, and it may even have been somewhat of a sideways deal, but right. our, our investors got money back and uh, all, almost all the employees were placed with the new company and they, they had a great experience. For me, it was a failure and I took it very hard and very personally. And uh, it led me to look back again and say, what, what am I doing here? You know, I, I mentioned earlier my manufacturing industry experience mm-hmm. where, you know, a business is just a business, not for me. Right. Again, I had gone off track. Uh, my skill sets are relationship management, marketing, uh, creativity and innovation, writing, things like that. But I had gone off course and gone uh, into the realm of technology and finance. I'm neither a technologist nor a financier. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate technology and understand its implications and I can describe it and stuff, but I, you don't ask me what's under the hood. And I'm certainly not a financier. So I moved out of my comfort zone significantly. And that's when I turned back to what I think I do best and what ultimately led me to creative growth and creative influence. So the lesson learned was stay in your comfort zone. Is that it? Well, uh, that kind of conflicts with your yeah, notion com- of comfort zone, you know, creativity com- and yeah, comfort zone engineering. Comfort zones. Um, I, I would I would describe it differently because I certainly place myself constantly outside of my comfort right. zone. But the tools I use to move through the discomfort zone are the skills first that you know I'm best at. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, was it Marcus Buckingham who had that? Uh, what was the uh, the name of his book? First, use your strengths or something like that. Right. And that's really what I've tried to do. It's rather than shore up my weaknesses, really play on and and bring to the world some value through what I do the best. And using those tools, those are the best for me to solve problems. So mm-hmm. when I get stuck, when I get out of my comfort zone, my first order of business is what do I have? What assets do I have that I'm best at and enjoy that might allow me to reinvent this situation? So do you apply these same lessons then to some of your consulting with big firms and smaller firms? And what are some of the other common denominators you see with entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in terms of success or failure. Michael, the starting point is, I think maybe even how we started the conversation earlier, the idea of creativity and innovation as a strategic uh, Mm -hmm. step first. So I start almost every engagement by asking, what is this client famous for? What do they want to be famous for? What's their positioning, to use a marketing buzzword, meaning what do they do well? What do they enjoy doing well? And who cares? Not that, like, who cares? Nobody cares. But who cares most? Which clients are going to be most receptive to those strengths and how do we help that client get in front of more of those people so that theme is consistent no matter what it's it's essentially strategy before tactics Mm -hmm. sun tzu wrote the art of war he said tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat there was stephen ross was an executive who owned parking lots in new york in the 1970s and then he ended up buying time warner my father you know was fascinated 
fascinated by him as my father worked in New York in the media business and cut out an article for me. It was about Steve Ross and his path to success. And Steve Ross said, 10% thinking, 90% doing. Strategy before tactics. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you overthink, but you mm-hmm. got to put a little time in right. to aiming before firing. Right. That's stuck with yeah. me. No, I'm a believer of that too. Andrew, as we wrap it up here, what's next for you and creative influence and creative growth? And do you have any more books that you're working on? Yeah, I, I do. So what I found a lot of joy and success with clients in helping them create content that build conversations, meaning content that builds relationships and those relationships ultimately drive business. You know, we do that in all kinds of different ways from a strategic level to a very hands-on tactical level. I don't want to stop doing that anytime mm-hmm. soon. I really like that. Personally, I, I've tried to blend personal interests with business interests, especially in professional services, but I think this is true anywhere. It's harder and harder to separate the two, or it's a false duality to separate work from life. The more you can integrate those two things, the better. And that is in some ways a creative life when you can do that. So for me, and again, it's why I'm spending more time doing content creation, because right. that's what I like to do in my spare time. Right. Some, my wife says, why are you writing the book? How are you going to make money off of that? I'm like, honey, you know, some <laughs> people go play golf. This is the crazy stuff I do. What can I tell you? In addition to writing a book about business, uh, my first book was, uh, the last folk here was a book about creativity, actually. It's uh-huh. a book about outsider folk artists who create despite incredibly difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they have this innate urge mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they let it out. So the book I'm working on is, has a, is similarly themed. It's about living a creative life. It's about balancing doing and, and thinking, getting quiet and letting things come to you and conversely getting active and driving towards things. So what's the balance? Early in my career, I spent more time acting and grasping and reaching for things without enough quiet time and allowing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things to step forward. I, I still haven't perfected the balance, but I'm better at it. So life is better. But you're bringing creativity to life, essentially. Right. And that's, you know, that's where I think I can add value in that. So that's what the next book is about. Right. You're doing that for you personally and for your clients. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I'm really doing it for me personally. But what I found is that by kind of indulging or expressing those personal interests, it's allowed me to build great business relationships because people say, really, that's weird. What did you wait? Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. You're not just a marketing geek who, you know, is out to sell stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, No, I'm actually a human being, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Well, don't ask my wife about that. (laughs) Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing uh, this wonderful creative snapshot of how you built your career, your advice about sales-enabled relationship marketing, PR, content, and thanks too for your stories about yourself and your clients. And we look forward to your next book and your next entrepreneurial adventure. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.